On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. That's brilliant. Annabelle, thanks so much. Lovely to see you. Thanks um, for writing the blog. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you soon. Great. Well, we're going to turn to that passage now. Um, John chapter 11. Why not have that in front, in front of you? And I'm going to pray. Let's ask that God would help us um, as we listen to his word. Father, please, this afternoon we pray that you, by your powerful spirit, would speak to each one of us. That we wouldn't just hear words from a preacher. We wouldn't just read words on a page. But that we might hear the very voice of God speak to us. Lord, please wake us up, soften our hearts, prepare our minds to listen and to delight and to trust what you say. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said these words to Martha. Remember, her brother has just died. And Jesus said these words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Listen to those last four words. Do you believe this? So here is Jesus confronted with Martha and he asks her this question which puts her in this position where she has a choice to make, a decision to make. Will she believe what Jesus is saying to her in the face of an unspeakable tragedy? Do you believe this? And that same question, those four same words, echo down through the centuries from the lips of Jesus himself. He speaks them today by the power of his Spirit to you. Do you believe this? I don't know why you find yourself in church this afternoon. I don't know what it was that brought you here. Perhaps it's what you always do. It's your habit. It's just what you do on a Sunday afternoon. Or perhaps you're here, you haven't been here for a while, but you've for some reason wanted to come this afternoon. Or perhaps you've never really been in church before and you find yourself here because someone invited you or you've wandered in. And it doesn't matter how you ended up here, the same question confronts each one of us. Do you believe this? And I want us to sort of mull on that question and feel that question. 
And so um, just to help us think about it, what I've done is I've, under every chair, I've put um, an, a pin, an invisible pin, an imaginary pin, which I'd love you, if you want to play along, to reach down and pick up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you see, I want you to hold... Even if you didn't pick it up, it's okay, because it can jump into your hands. You can do it by... It's very clever. Now, I want you to hold that pin. And although this is silly in some ways, we're going to be confronted with this question this afternoon. You have one place that you can put that pin, one place where you can pin your hope. You have only, you've only got one pin. This is it. This is your hope. This is, where are you going to say, this is the one thing that I'm banking on. This is the one thing that I will pin my hope on. I want to try and persuade you. No, I don't want to try and persuade you. John wants to try and persuade you. In fact, not just John. Jesus himself wants to try to persuade you this afternoon that we need to pin our hope on him. Everything. And so I want you to keep hold of that pin. We're going to come back to it at the end. Don't lose it. If you do lose it, don't worry. It's dead easy to find. So Jesus says, do you believe this? Of course, the question is what? What is Jesus asking us to believe? What is Jesus asking Martha to believe? When he says, Martha, do you believe this? Well, we need to back up and we need to see where we're at in this story. We need to unpack what's going on and we need to particularly focus in on this statement that Jesus makes, that I am the resurrection and the life. And this talk is going to be very simple. We're going to try and carefully define three words. And if we can carefully define these three words, I think they will help us to understand what Jesus means when he says, do you believe this? Firstly, we're going to try and carefully define life. What is life? Secondly, we're going to try and carefully define death. And thirdly, we're going to think very carefully about what the word resurrection means. Life, death, resurrection. We need those three words in our heads so that when we then hear Jesus say, do you believe this, we understand the huge enormity of what he's saying and the glorious reality that he's offering us. But let's back it all up. We're in the middle of John's gospel. John is an eyewitness of Jesus. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. And John wrote it down for us. But he didn't just write down nice stories so that we could sing nice songs in school assemblies about Jesus having kind hands. He didn't just write nice things. He wrote with a purpose. He is like a highly skilled barrister who is making his case, who is curating and bringing together evidence to show us, to put before us that we might be persuaded to believe something. He is ordering his clues to drive us towards one obvious and inescapable conclusion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, that's what John is doing. 
These are not randomly thrown together recollections of a bumbling old man talking about his good old friend Jesus. These are the carefully put together words of someone who believes something so passionately that they want you to know it as well. And a key plank of that has been these seven massive signs, these wonderful signs that reveal who Jesus is. And this, we're in the middle of the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So last week we saw Jesus receive news that Lazarus was sick. But it was odd, wasn't it? Because rather than rush to the bedside of his sick friend, instead Jesus delayed, he waited, knowing that the delay would mean that Lazarus would die. But that was not some cruel and heartless action. Rather, it was driven by a deeper purpose. A deeper longing that Jesus has for this family, that they would see his glory. And so now he's arrived. Verse 17, we read, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. They must have been the four worst days of Mary and Martha's life. Four days of unimaginable sorrow. And the crowds have been gathering. We're told that Many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. You see, they've come to comfort. That's the best they've got, isn't it? They're there physically present to comfort Mary and Martha. And that's a beautiful thing. To have someone physically present with you when you are sorrowing is a beautiful thing. It really is. But Jesus has come to do more than that. He's come to do more than simply comfort them in their grief. He has come to bring a bigger, more beautiful, more lasting comfort. And the way that John tells us what happens next is very carefully constructed. I want you to see this because this is the next three sermons in John's Gospel. Because what happens when Jesus gets to to the scene is that three times people basically say to him, why weren't you here? If you'd been here. So Martha says it first. She says it in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then when you jump down to verse um, 32... The second sister, Mary, says exactly the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then in verse 37, the crowd say to Jesus, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Three times, the same thing is essentially said, Jesus, if only you had been here, And the fascinating thing is that to each of those three different groups, Jesus gives a different response because he knows what they need. He doesn't treat them all the same. And so to Martha, he answers her with powerful words. It's what we're going to explore today. With Mary, he 
he answers Mary with powerful emotion. He sympathizes. He weeps with her. And then to the crowd, he answers them with powerful action as he raises the dead man to life. And that's really the agenda for the next three sermons in John's Gospel. Powerful words, powerful emotion, powerful action. Because that's what Jesus is like. He's not just got the words. He's also someone who comes close and weeps and loves and draws near. But he's not just someone who's got words and sympathy. He's also got the power to do something about it. And when you put those three together, suddenly you're presented with a Jesus who is extraordinary and one that you might even be willing to pin your hope on. So that's, that's where we're going for the next three weeks. So we're going to focus on Martha today and on the powerful words that Jesus answers her with. So she makes her statement, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now I don't think she's blaming, I don't think she's sort of angry. I don't think she's accusing him. Um, I don't think she's saying, oh, you should have been here. I think it's just that painful regret. If only you'd been here, Jesus. I know you could have done something if only you'd been here. I think that's a very powerful picture, actually, of often how we find life to be, don't you? Haven't you got if-only moments in your life? If only this hadn't happened. If only I hadn't done that. If only I hadn't said that. If only, if only, if only. Yeah, we experience regret. We experience the the frustration and the sorrow and the disappointment of life when it goes wrong, something precious that's been lost. But even in her regret, she's not lost her confidence in Jesus. See, listen to what she says. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now again, I don't think she's expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. Because when we get to that bit, which is in like three weeks' time, when we get there, when Jesus says, let's roll the stone away, Martha's like, no, let's not do that. That's a bad idea. So she's not expressing some great confidence that Jesus knows exactly he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I think she's simply saying, but Jesus, I still, I still know, that, I know that you know what you're doing. I trust you. I, I sort of know that the father, and, and I don't know exactly what's going on in her heart. She's a mess, right? Emotionally, she's all over the place, but still there's this kind of, she's drawn to Jesus, not away from him. She runs towards him and expresses, even now, Jesus. Well, Jesus says to her um, in verse 23, your brother will rise again. What do you make of that as a statement to say? It's actually quite ambiguous. Your brother will rise again. It's a sort of a general statement that, yes, Lazarus will rise again. And according to Orthodox Judaism, what Martha would believe, there was coming a day, a future distant day, 
when the dead would be raised and judgment would come and God would put all things right. There was a future day that they were longing for. And so Martha responds to him and says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. How do you think she said that? I don't think that was a kind of, oh, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. No, that was a sort of, oh, Jesus, I know. I know there's hope, but I'm here. I'm today. I want comfort today. And this can sometimes be the problem, can't it, as Christians? We know there's a future. We know there's a hope. But what about now? What about when I'm in pain now? What about when I'm suffering now? What about when everything seems dark now? Where's the hope now? Here it comes. As Jesus looks at his dear friend Martha, and he says to her, I and the resurrection and the life. Do you, not, do you not see? Jesus says to Martha, this hope that you have, this future hope which seems so distant and abstract, it's here. It's me. Jesus gathers up that future hope and he drags it from a distant future right into the present situation and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. It's me. I'm here. And suddenly Jesus goes from a vague, slightly ambiguous statement, your brother will rise again, to suddenly a concrete, absolute statement where he says, it's me, I am. And this is the fifth time in John's Gospel that Jesus has used this this statement structure, I am. He is deliberately echoing the divine name of God when God spoke to Moses back in the book of Exodus and Moses said, God, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. And now Jesus takes that divine name, I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. He takes that divine name to his lips and he says, I am. This is the fifth time he said it. And each time, there are seven of them in John, which won't come as a great surprise to you. There are seven signs. There are seven I am sayings. John is putting his case to you. And Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. But what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, I am the resurrection? Well, that's where we need to get our words. We're now going to try and clearly define these three words so that we understand what Jesus means. And I hope that I'm going to be able to persuade you that resurrection is better than anything that you've ever dreamt of. If I'd done a survey as you walked in the door today and said, define the word resurrection, my guess is that nearly all of us would have said something like, 
Well, it's coming back to life. It's coming back to life again. I want to show you it's not. It's more. It's better than that. I want to show you that resurrection is about crossing over from death to life. Resurrection is about a transformation that happens. It is not about returning to a state that you were in. It is about moving from a state that you are in to a state that you were not in. That is, you are in a place of death. Resurrection is the means by which you move from death to life. You see, if we think that resurrection is just about coming back to life again, then what we think is that what we have now is life. And then we die, but it's okay because then we get life back again. Oh good, we've got life back. But that's because our definition of life is too small. You see, if you think that what we've got now by nature, is life, then you've got far too small a view of life. So let's do this, right? Let's define the word life. I want to try and think with you, theologically, biblically, what does the word life really mean? In order to do that, I want to go back to the first uh, couple of chapters of Genesis. Um, If you've got a Bible, you can flick there if you want. But I want to show you four features that I think, I mean, you could probably say a lot more. This is only scratching the surface. But four features that I think you see in Genesis 2 that kind of, this is what the Bible means by life. If you're going to understand resurrection, you've got to know where resurrection ends up. It ends up in life. Okay, well, what is the life it ends up in? Well, let's have a look at Genesis 2. This is the blueprint of life. We're told um, in Genesis chapter 2 of God creating life. And we're told about this garden. And then in verse 7 it says, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Here's the first thing we see about life it's a gift. Life is a gift that is breathed into you by God. Life is not an accident. Life is not a mysterious, ooh, don't quite know how that happened. It is a gift that comes from God. Now, hang on a second. How is it that God is able to give life? Well, because the Bible says that God is life in himself. That is not that God is living, it's he is life. He is the definition of life. No one gave God life. He's eternal. He's always had life. And because the eternal God has life, he is the one who is able to gift that life. So your life is a gift. True life is a gift. It is not something that you chose, right? Not, not one of us in this room chose to have life. You didn't choose it. You were given it. 
You didn't decide when it would start. You didn't decide where it would start. You didn't decide anything. It, it's a gift. I think that's profoundly humbling. That is true of every single human being, from the richest royalty to the poorest of the poor. Our life is a gift. So there we are in Genesis 2. It's, it's a gift. But now I want you to see that the, the, this gift is given and the life that God intends for the man and the woman in the garden is the life of freedom. It's a gift. It's a second It's freedom. God plants this beautiful garden. There's all kinds of trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So there's all these trees. Then there's a river and there's gold and the gold was good and it was all good. Everything was good. It was great. And then God gave this one command to the people. Do you know the command? Again, if I'd asked you as you came in, what command did God give in the garden? I wonder how many of us would have said, well, the command was you must not eat the, the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's not the command. Here's the command. You are free. Those are the words God spoke to the people. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. The life that God created us for was a life of Freedom. From the countless trees, all of which were pleasing to the eye and good for food. From the beautiful river and the gold and the joy. Do you not see that life, as God intended it, is abundantly, joyfully free? That's what we were made for. That's true life. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not sure that my life feels like that a lot of the time. Perhaps you're beginning to see why I say that what we have now might not be truly life. Freedom. But thirdly, I want you to see that this life that we were created for, which is a gift and is freedom, was also a life of dependence. A life where we were created to live in dependence upon the God who gave us life. You see, one of the trees that we were free to eat from was the tree of life. God said, go eat from the tree of life. The indication seems to be that humanity was created and designed to live forever, but the way you lived forever was to eat the tree. Not the tree, the fruit. To eat from, yeah, not the tree, it'd be chewy, but to eat from the fruit. You see, God didn't just say, right, here's life, have it forever, off you go, have a nice time. He said, I'm going to give you life and I'm going to give you access to the tree and you choose to depend on me every time you go to that tree and eat and live, you choose life. And as you sink your jaws into the delicious life-giving tree of life fruit, (laughs) as you sink your jaws into it, you are proclaiming, I trust you. And you live. That's what you were made for. That's true life. And 
And God said, there is one tree you must not eat from. And we say, ah, you see, there we go. There's the catch, mean old God. But here's the deal. One tree you must not eat from. When all of the others, you say, yeah, but this one, this one's described as pleasing to the eye and good for food. Yeah, but so are all of those. They're described the same way. It's not that this tree had the best fruit and was the most gorgeous looking. It was no different to all the other trees. It just sat there and God said, but not that one. Why would he do that? Because he wanted us to depend on him and trust him. Because true life is about dependence on God. Not saying I'll do whatever I want, but saying, God, you're the life giver. I will trust you and I will feast on this tree of life that you've set before me. Dependence. And the fourth feature of life is the presence of God. You lived in God's presence. This was the place where God came to walk in the cool of the day. This is the place where you enjoyed intimate relationship with God. So if you want to know what life biblically is, life is a gift from God. Life is about freedom. Life is about dependence upon the God who made us and about relationship with him, being in his presence. That's life. That's what you were made for. That's what your body aches for. That's what you long for. That's what we were made for. That is our home. But Jesus is standing at a tomb, and his best friend Lazarus has died. Because you know as well as I do that our world is not that way. And of course, you know, all of secular society will tell us, well, it's just, you know, it's just the way things are. It's the circle of life. The Bible says, no, it's not. Death is a horrific enemy that has crept into our world and has taken all that is life and has removed it and has distorted it. You see, when human beings refused to trust God and refused to depend on him, the gift was removed. You see, when humanity rebelled against God, God said, now humanity has become like one of us. They must not be allowed to reach out their hands and take from the tree of life and live forever. No longer you can have access to the tree of life. Because humanity is now in rebellion, the gift is removed and withdrawn. And the freedom that we thought we were choosing when we ate from the one tree we were told not to eat from has ended up in slavery. And so now most of our lives feel like slavery, feel like drudgery, feel like a struggle. Things go wrong. Thistles spoil our garden. The internet breaks down. This goes wrong. This fails. This stops. Your gearbox in your car breaks down when you're supposed to be going on holiday. Not that I'm bitter about it last week. This is what happens. Because we live in a place now of death. 
No longer do we live in dependence on God. We now have to live for ourselves. We now have to make our own way in life. We now have to be in charge of our own lives. And it's so stressful. And no longer do we have the presence of God. We're now shut out from God's presence. This is what the Bible means by death. According to the Bible, death is the opposite of life. If life is living in the freedom of God's presence, then death is the slavery of living away from God's presence. And so what is resurrection? Resurrection is crossing over from death to life. You see, the reality is that every single human being that has ever lived has been born not into a world of life, but into a world of death. Not into the world of freedom, but into the world of slavery. We've been born into that world and we choose that world and every single day we choose to rebel against God. That is why we die. Death is not a gift like life. Death is a wage that we get paid. It's it's what we get paid for our sin. If you like, sin is how you cross from life to death. There's only one way and there's no way back. Until Jesus comes. And when Jesus says to Martha at the tomb, I am the resurrection, he is saying, I am the one who is able to cross people over from death to life. Hang on a second, Jesus. How on earth can you do that? We'd have to go back to John chapter 5 to see that. Because just as the Father God has life in himself, so the Son, Jesus, has life in himself and gives life to any that he chooses. It's still a gift. You see, the gift is given. Jesus came to give you life, not so you could earn it, not so you could deserve it, not so you could buy it, not so you could perform enough to reward it, just a gift that Jesus gives. He gives, he gives. The Son gives life to anyone who believes. You see, life is still a gift. And then when you get to John chapter 8, we've already sung these words in our service. I didn't even know the songs that Johnny was picking, but we already sung these words. Whom the Son sets free, they're free indeed. That's John chapter 8. Or John chapter 10, Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, I've not just come to make your life that you've got now better. He says, I've come to take you out of what you have now because it's death. And I've come to bring you to the place of life that you might have life to the full. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to open the door into the very presence of God so that you can go from death to life. That's why he can say, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. 
What he means is you have, if you have believed in Jesus, you have crossed over from the realm of death to the realm of life. You now belong to life, not death. And even though your physical body will one day die, you don't belong to death anymore. You belong to life. And therefore, even though you die, you will live. These are staggering things that Jesus is saying. And he's saying it because this is what we desperately need. Okay, so here's, here's, here's the problem. Let's try and land this. Okay, I want to land this to see why we struggle to understand this and get this clear. I think we struggle to get this because we like life now. I remember chatting to um, a 14-year-old boy. Years ago, I was doing, um, I just meet up to chat to the, there's a group of them that I used to meet up with. And um, we were talking about the idea of this kind of life and Jesus coming back and that sort of stuff. He said to me, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's nice, but not until I'm 17. I was like, why? He goes, oh, I, I want to drive. I just want to be able to drive. And it just dawned on me. I thought, wow, you have no concept of this life that we're talking about. If you think that driving a car is somehow something that is worth putting off life for, and yet when I then examined my heart, I thought, I do that all the time. Because I love this life. Because I think that what I have now is really, truly life. Or at least I think I've almost got it. Right? This is loads of us sitting in this room. And it's millions of people in London. We think, I've almost got it. If I can just get these other couple of bits in, in line, if I could just get these things in place, just this, this little thing slightly irritating, and this little thing, and then if we just get those in, and then if we all stay still, I think we've got it. This is it. This is life. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And then someone moves, and it's gone again. Because we think that life is to be found here, in life. Well, it's actually, we're not taking seriously what the Bible says when it says that actually the world that we live in now is not the world of life. It's the world of death. It's a world of slavery. It's a world of disappointment and frustration. It's a world of if only and regrets. It's a world of longing and it's a world ultimately of suffering. And that's why we put our pin in all sorts of other things because we think that life is here and now. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, what you need is not just to get everything in line. What you need is resurrection. 
You need a transformation. You need to be changed from going to death to life. You need to be taken from death to life. You're not in life yet. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, he says, put all your hope in me and I will take you from death to life. And not in some distant, abstract, years away thing. He says, I'll do it for you now. You can begin to enjoy life now, even though you die. Because the life that Jesus has come to bring is the life that is a gift from God, that is freedom, that is dependence on God. And just as Adam and Eve should have munched on that tree of life forever and ever, we now get to munch on Jesus, so to speak. Bread of Life, chapter 6. We get to munch on Jesus and eat of Jesus and trust in Him and we live and we live and we live and we enjoy God's presence and we know God. That is life. And when this physical body dies and lies in the ground, I will not be dead. Because I will be with Him. And then, and this is the mind-bending bit, that we haven't got really time, any time to do this. We haven't got any time to do anything now. But this is stuff we have to do some more work on. My physical body will then be raised to be with Him forever and ever and ever. That's life. And we might say, well, how on earth do we know this is true? Jesus stands there and goes, well, I'm the resurrection life. Believe in me. Well, for a start, in two weeks, two Sundays' time, we're going to see that he raises Lazarus from the dead. But even more spectacularly, Jesus has done it. When he says, I am the resurrection, he's done it. Lazarus wasn't a real resurrection because he died again. You see, Lazarus was just brought back to life. But Jesus was raised to life. That's different. You see, when Jesus went into the when Jesus died on the cross and went into the tomb, he was in the place of death. He was cut off from God. He was cut off from his Father. He was enslaved by death. And it's then as Jesus rises from the dead that he says, I am the resurrection. Here is the resurrection. As he lives, here is life, life, life forever. And now he says, I'm the resurrection, and I'll give it to you. You want it? Do you believe this? As we finish, I want you to think about that pin again. Don't worry about picking it up. Just think about it. You're grown adults. What are you going to do with that pin? What difference would it make to your life if you pinned everything on Jesus? Think about how it would help us to live in this world. To say, my, this world is not my hope. This world is not my home. You pin all your hope on Jesus and you say, I will live with him. He was raised, I will be raised with him. And we begin to enjoy that life now. I've been very challenged by this this week. I think I can talk about believing in Jesus, but it can make no real difference. So here's, here's my question I want you to leave with. 
If you stopped believing in Jesus tomorrow, would it make any difference to your life? It might free up a bit of time on Sunday afternoon. It might free up a bit of your money, your bank balance. Would you miss it? Would you miss him at all? You see, when Jesus is everything, when you've got nothing, when your brother is lying dead in a grave, when, when, when you're facing situations that are way beyond you, it's only then that you realize, I've got nothing other than Jesus. So, dear, dear church family, I, I long that we'd be a church who pin all our hope on Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. Why don't we pray together and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus spoke these words of extraordinary power. Thank you that these are words that are true and we pray that we would pin our hope on this Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live that for your glory. Amen.